And now we come to the final canto of Dante's Paradiso, the final canto of the hundred-canto-long Divine Comedy. The final podcast, too, of Series 6 of our Evening Under Lamplight podcasts with Robert Louis Abrahamson. We'll offer our concluding comments at the end, but now let's get on with Dante. Let's get on, because we were left hanging at the end of the last canto. Bernard told Dante that he could not attain his divine vision without first praying for help from Mary. I'll pray and you follow me, he told Dante. And, and here's what he prayed. And with that, the canto ended, leaving us to wait until our present canto for the content of that prayer. As usual, the prayer begins with a formal salutation to the person being addressed, defining the way you want to make contact with that person. Bernard addresses Mary with a series of paradoxes. She's a virgin mother, the daughter of her son, both more humble and more elevated than anyone else. Her virtues rose so high above the average human nature that she became the fitting place for the creator of humanity to create himself through the human process he created in the first place. Her womb gave the generative heat that made this celestial rose bloom in eternal peace. And she is the torch of love to all these saints in heaven, and on earth the living source of all their hope. Then the focus shifts to Mary as intercessor, the one whose prayers are so effective that anyone seeking grace but not seeking it through her would be like someone trying to fly without having any wings. In fact, her love is so great that sometimes she offers help to people even before they ask for it. And as a climax to her attributes, Bernard joins her mercy, her compassion, her generosity, and all the other virtues all joined together more than are to be found in any other creature. And then Bernard gets down to business, presenting Dante to Mary, asking for her grace to help him reach his ultimate salvation. Bernard says that he longs for Dante to achieve this as much as he's ever longed for it himself, which gives impetus to his prayer that Mary's prayers can remove all Dante's earthly encumbrances so he may at last perceive the highest beauty. Oh yes, and one more thing he asks of Mary, that she, who can obtain anything she desires, may help Dante retain the purity of this divine vision after he returns to his living life, and protect him from all harmful passions. In support of these prayers, he points out that Beatrice and many of the other saints here are adding their prayers to his. In response to this prayer, Mary looks at Bernard with deeply loving eyes, showing how much his devoted prayer means to her, but since, since there are things that mean even more, she then returns her gaze into the eternal light. Dante, knowing how close he is now to his ultimate desire, puts all his efforts into pushing his ardor of longing to the limits. Signaling with a smile, Bernard indicates that Dante should look upwards, but Dante's already drawn there, his purer sight rising up into that highest light. And now he has, once again, reached the limits of language to express what it was like, also the limits of memory, which cannot retain this experience. Dante tries three analogies to try to define this loss of remembrance, 
first a human simile, and then one from nature, and then one from classical literature. It is, Dante first tells us, like someone who wakes from a dream and cannot remember any of the details, but still retains the feeling created by the dream. Yes, his divine vision has almost entirely faded from his memory, but not the feeling in his heart of that great sweetness coming from the vision. Or, or maybe it's like the way the sun will melt the imprint of a footstep in the snow. You know it was there, but you can't really trace its details anymore. Or, to take a classical example, it's like the way the Sibyl wrote her oracles, her divine messages, on leaves, which then the wind just swept away. Certainly here once, but now out of reach. Well, what else can you do when you want something that is beyond your power to achieve, you pray for help, which is what Dante the writer does at this point, asking that the light more powerful than human thinking should give him even just a little remembrance of its appearance then. And he asks for something else to go with it, the ability to convey this memory, a little spark in the mind, to the readers who come after him, that is, us. He's not asking this for his own sake, but so that this light, in other words, God, can win back more of us. I suppose we could call this the evangelical impulse of the poem. Dante remembers now that the ray of light was so intense that he felt he would have been lost if he turned away from it. This finally is the ultimate true path that he had lost in that dark wood. So he keeps his gaze fixed on that light and finally reaches beyond the ray down into the source of the ray, into that point of the unlimited good. What can he say now except to stop the narrative yet again and cry out in delight at the abundance of grace that enabled him to gaze this intently on such magnificence to the full extent of his ability to see into it? His prayer seems to have been answered, since his memory of what he saw becomes even more detailed now. He sees the way all things are ultimately connected in one grand divine plan. Or, as he puts it, he sees all the pages from all over the universe bound together into one coherent volume. Or, as he puts it a second time, he sees how the essences of things and their external characteristics, technically called the substances and accidents, how they play off each other, though it is only a part of the whole game. Dante now feels he understands how all these things fit together, or how that great knot of universal creations is put together, the great unity of all the created diversity. He can tell he sees this deep truth because, even as he writes this for us, he can feel his heart expand. But although he can remember that he was able to see this divine unity, he, he cannot remember anything about the unity he perceived. His memory seems to remember more clearly his own actions, absorbed in his gazing, growing more exalted and delighted as he gazes. Who would ever turn away from such delight, which is, after all, the fulfillment of all our deepest longings, which only find partial fulfillment elsewhere? And then there's another break in the narrative, as Dante realizes that even if he can remember some of what he experienced, he finds that his words are not equal to describing these things, which are too complicated to explain. He'll try anyway, of course. Now, as he gazes, what he sees changes, 
or rather it doesn't change since it is always the same, but his sight strengthens and enables him to see more of it. It only seems to be transformed. It's Dante who's being transformed, really. Here's what he sees. In the depth of that light, he sees three circles appear, each a different color, but each occupying the same place, as though the second circle is a reflection of the first, and the third is a kind of fiery outbreath of the first two. It's impossible, of course, to describe this accurately. This, as he expects us to recognize, is the Father and the Son, co-equal, and the Holy Spirit, who proceedeth from the Father and the Son. Again Dante protests that his words are not doing justice even to the little that he remembers. And so again he addresses that eternal light, full of knowledge of itself, reflecting that knowledge and love back and forth between its different persons. Then he begins to perceive a human form in one of the circles, the second person of the Trinity as perfect God and perfect man. Dante's rational mind is still trying to make sense of this apparently contradictory human presence in the Godhead. How does that form come to be in the circle? But of course his human mind is not able to get very far with this kind of question, until, like a sudden bolt of lightning, he has a sudden revelation of the truth. He understands the essential divine paradox. He is not able to tell us what he understood, only that he understood. All human power seems to have disappeared, and what is left is his consciousness that his will and his desire are in sync with each other. Dante's image for this is not exactly clear. Are they in sync like two wheels turning together on one axis? Or perhaps like two points on the same wheel, both moving in the same rotation? Whatever the case, we leave Dante as in a circle, like the other souls in heaven, moving in harmony with the love that generates all movement in the universe, through the movement of the sun and the other stars. And here ends the canto, as had the final canto of the Inferno and the Purgatorio, with the word stelle, stars, those gleaming lights of divine energy out of reach, but pouring down all the creative loving goodness upon our world. The canto begins with the paradoxes of Mary and ends with the inexpressible paradoxical features of God, three circles in one and the sun as both God and man at the same time. Praying to Mary, we see, is not just asking for the essential aid to take the final step to God, but is also the final preparation for putting our rational minds aside in order to enter into that moment beyond all understanding, which comes as just a flash of insight, the goal of all things. This intensely rational, intellectual poem ends on a level where rational intelligence is out of its range, almost as if it is daring us, too, to let go. Seeing has all along been identified with understanding, coming to Dante through questions and answers, or little dramas or metaphors, which our imagination can clarify for us. But here at the end, seeing abandons discursive and imaginative thinking, no longer physical vision, but unmediated insight. What Wordsworth meant when he spoke about being able to see into the life of things. 
Dante has now moved beyond his restless questioning and has come to rest at last, or, or maybe just the rest to be found in wheeling around the divine center, in harmony with that love that moves the sun and the other stars. There's really only one action in this canto, Dante looking up into the divine light. But this action is extended over the whole canto, slowing the movement down, perhaps almost into a kind of hypnotic state, in which Dante does not know what he is seeing, circles or the human form, or what, and the narrative itself seems broken down or broken up with various prayers and comments about his lack of ability to, rem to remember or to write. And he tries one last time to figure everything out, but this effort is swept away with the final grand epiphany. It may strike our modern ears as strange, even unnecessary, to have that very formal prayer to Mary patterned on the formal outline of a public oration. But if we find it strange, that's probably because we have lost our appreciation of formality, perhaps because we have lost the sense of hierarchy. In a hierarchy, you need some kind of formality. Each person occupies a specific place on the ladder, and when they address each other on business, so to speak, it's not as one individual speaking to another, like an informal chat, but as someone from one position addressing someone else from another position. You speak with deference when you speak to someone higher up, and with what used to be called condescension, that is, kindly consideration, to someone lower down. In doing this, you show your respect for the hierarchy itself, both your place in it and the other's place in it. And so we see even St. Bernard, known for his devotion to Mary, even he comes to her with a formal prayer. Bernard formally presents Dante to Mary, telling her that this man has been down through hell and up and desires to take the final step and see the divine face. But it's not as if Mary doesn't know all this already. After all, she's the one who initiated this whole journey. But again, it's part of the formality to present him as at court, with all the pomp and deference required, restating Dante's circumstances, if only for form's sake. But, but what do we do with all this veneration of Mary? How do we turn these phrases into more than just phrases? I don't think we can make sense of it without a sense of hierarchy and the need for intercessionary steps to the highest divine. I don't mean that we have to start looking at the world as a hierarchy, though that might not be a bad thing if we do it right, but that, as good readers, we ought to play with this perspective and try to experience what it might feel like to see the world as hierarchy. Military people, for instance, do this, and they can become quite aware of the distinction between the person and the office. And even though the person may be odious and unfit for the office, we still offer respect for the office itself. Uh, we saw this earlier in the Paradiso when, for all his disrespect, even hatred, towards Boniface VIII, Dante nevertheless respects his role as Pope. And so Bernard, for all his great intimacy with Mary, in a circumstance like this, when he desires the help of her heavenly position, he is addressing Mary as the Queen of Heaven, the Mother of God, not as simply Mary in herself. 
We can't help being struck in this canto by all Dante's protests about the failure of memory and, what's worse, the failure of words. The poem might just come to a halt without its subject matter or its means of expression. Yet Dante persists, even though having to break the narrative many times to confess his inadequacy or to pray to the light he's gazing at or remembers gazing at. It's, it's a real problem for Dante the poet here, how to finish his story which now, at its climax, is dealing with things beyond rational experience, things we can know about only by flashes of inspiration, which is something not really conducive to smooth narrative. Dante can feel the effect of these flashes lingering within himself, but the details, clear in that one instant of revelation, are, are too high or too deep for ordinary human expression. So he resorts to analogies that volume containing all the pages scattered around the world, the circles of different colors, the final image of the wheel or wheels rotating in sync. I don't think we're meant to take away from this final canto any new understanding or any lessons, just the impression of this experience, the inexpressible awe, the confusion of detail, the steady progression of deeper insight which passeth all understanding, altering with lapses in our human struggles to make sense of this. It's what is called an apophatic description, something we cannot put into words, something that goes deeper than words. We have been passing through one of the great mythic journey narratives, which comes to a halt at the very end, having reached its goal and having nothing further to say. In most other mythic journeys, the hero's final stage is the return, returning with new powers to cleanse the wasteland that the journey began from. There is no return in the Divine Comedy, though. Or, or rather, yes, there is, but not as part of the narrative. It's part of a kind of extra-narrative, which takes place in the space between the final line of the poem and the first line of the Inferno, Dante's return from his vision back to his desk, returning as the enlightened poet with a mission. The poem itself is his return, and our response to it is, we hope, his healing of the wasteland. Dante says that as he got deeper into this beatific vision, he was able to see both the substance and the accidents and their interactions, or what in Sanskrit is called the lila, the play between them. I think we've spoken about this before on our podcasts, but let's go over it again. The substance in classical and medieval philosophy is the true essence of a thing, its eternal identity, apart from its attributes, which are products of space and time, its accidents, things like physical appearance or origin or talent or gender. The energy of our life comes in large part from the interplay of these two aspects, how the essential self makes use of the accidents presented to it in this life. We might understand the way the two play off each other by looking at an actor and the role the actor takes on for the duration of a performance. The actor has an identity outside of the time and place of the play, but then takes on a role within the play, and the actions and speeches there are, we might say, the accidents, not part of the actor's true self. We praise the actor, or criticize the actor, 
for the way he or she interacts with the script and the other actors, the accidents, as we might say. The early Puritans did not see theatre in this way. To them, performing a part was to engage in lying. I am Hamlet, Prince of Denmark, the actor would say. No, you're not, the Puritan would insist. You're Richard Burbage, the actor. If you keep on lying, you will go to hell. These Puritans could not see the difference between substance and accident, and lost the sense of playfulness. Some modern fans cannot see the difference either, and confuse the actor with some of the famous roles the actor has played. Sometimes the actor himself or herself forgets the distinction. It's, it's not easy to keep the balance of distinguishing the actor from the dramatic role, and at the same time seeing how the two work together, the way one actor can bring life to a role, and another actor can bring a different kind of life to the same role. A good critic is someone who stays alive to this interplay. Or another example. Many years ago, I read, I can't remember where, the parable of a wise man who is invited to an important dinner. He shows up in jeans and a t-shirt, while everyone else is wearing formal attire. What does he do? That's the question put to us. And the answer? Well, he doesn't even notice that he's dressed differently. Now, how does that strike you? It's, it's always disturbed me. I don't agree with it, nor I think would Dante. This wise man seems able to see only substance, only the true, deep identity of all the people there, surely one of the most important achievements anyone can have. But he apparently pays no attention to the accidents, here the clothes everyone is wearing. He cannot see the interplay between the two. He cannot enjoy the irony of his wearing inappropriate clothes. Unlike the Puritans, who could not distinguish substance from accidents, this wise man doesn't even have time for the accidents. Yes, he's wise, but he's lost some of his humanity, and I, th I think by now we can see how far that is from Dante's vision, far even from his literal vision here in Canto 33, when, in the very midst of his view of God, he sees the human form, earthly forms inextricably conjoined to the heavenly substance. That wise man in the parable can't sustain the balance of the circles and the human form together. We might say that he is adhering to that heresy we heard of in Canto Six, the monophytes, the heresy Justinian held before his conversion, believing only in the divinity and not the humanity of Christ. That wise man would see those three circles in the eternal light, but no human figure in their midst, only the substance of God and not the accidentals he took on through his incarnation, born in Bethlehem, speaking to apostles, dying on the cross, etc. So then, with that kind of view, yes, why bother with what people look like or what clothes they wear? And then, by extension, why bother about all the corruption in society, or, come to that, all the beauty in nature? Or why write such an intricate poem so full of the details of human experience? The substance of the divine comedy is what we might call the meaning of the poem, something we might be able roughly to paraphrase. But it's the accidents that bring it to life, the language, the tone, the relationship of the poet with his material and with us, his readers. 
and it is in the interplay between the meaning and the poetry, the substance and the accidents, that we find whatever real divinity the poem offers us, the power of the Holy Spirit moving through the poem, as Dante might put it. But one more thing, and then we'll finish. In the penultimate line, Dante tells us that once his intellectual restlessness has been put aside by that flash of insight into God, his will and his desire are in harmony. Everything he desires he can approve of by his will. His desires are now so ordered that they all point to the one object of his will, his choice to be united with God. Or we can put it the other way around. His greatest desire is to be conjoined with God, and now his will is so purified that he chooses only those things that will lead to this conjunction. And this, we see here, is the ultimate goal of human life, the state obtained by all these heavenly souls we've been seeing throughout the Paradiso. And it's with that thought we leave our discussion. It's been a year since the podcast of Inferno Canto One. No doubt if I turned around and started a new series of podcasts on this same poem, I would see many things differently, and you would be receptive to new things too. That's the point of great literature. It always offers something new. It is alive, at least if we are receptive. Well, now it's time, somehow, to bring our time together with Dante to an end. I could make this a formal farewell, couldn't I? But as we know, that would imply some kind of hierarchy, and you and I are not in a hierarchical relationship. But, but maybe, maybe the hierarchy exists between us, mere modern readers, and Dante himself, or the poem itself, which is surely greater than we are. So let us at least bow in thanks to Dante, and in praise to the poem itself, leaving it with the promise to come back again, even if only to pick up one of the three volumes, open it almost at random, and read a canto just to enjoy the performance, letting it work on us, and us with it, the Leela of deep reading. And let me thank you too, without whom, of course, and all that. What comes next on our Evening Under Lamplight podcasts? I don't know. I'll be teaching Emily Dickinson's poetry, so different from Dante's, but I'm not sure how I could make podcasts out of these poems. But we'll see. If you're subscribed to the podcasts, as I hope you are, one day you will see the first episode of Series 7 showing up in your inbox, and you'll see where we're going next. You can always get in touch with me via lamplight at cambridge105.co.uk. And you can listen to our fortnightly Evening Under Lamplight radio shows on Cambridge 105 Radio, late on alternate Sunday evenings. Find the shows at cambridge105.co.uk. And so we leave Dante for the moment, sharing with us his famous final line, L'amor che muove il sole e l'altre stelle, the love that moves the sun and the other stars. Goodbye for now.